We're in Mark's Gospel. We're in the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. He has entered Jerusalem and he is now going to be teaching in the temple in uh, Jerusalem. And what we looked at last time was the challenge of the gospel. So the word gospel means good news. And it's a declaration that we don't have to save ourselves, that God in Jesus Christ has done everything. Now, that's the best news in the world. But in these chapters, Jesus isn't just declaring that good news. He's challenging those that hear the gospel in their response to the good news. So Jesus alone saves but we need to respond in the right way to the gospel. So uh, this morning, I want us to look at this gospel challenge in terms of the parable of the vine dressers. Now, a parable is a lesson, a spiritual lesson drawn from everyday life. Now, uh, vines and vine dressing isn't part of our everyday life. But in Jesus' day, the people would have been familiar uh, with uh, the, the vineyard and the owner of the vineyard, who would have been away from the vineyard, as in this parable, and then these vine dressers, who were his workers, charged with looking after the vineyard. And they would be paid by the owner, but the contents of the vineyard didn't belong to them. They belonged to the owner. And what we have here are vine dressers who treat the owner in an abhorrent way. Uh, he uh, wants the product of his vineyard, so he sends servants to them and they mistreat them. Uh, they eventually kill uh, the servants and then in one last act, he decides to send his only beloved son, thinking that they will listen to him. But when they have the son come, they say, this is the heir. If we do away with him, we will have the vineyard for ourselves and they kill the son. And Jesus is saying, this is how you, religious people, this is how you, the nation of Israel, which is often compared to a vineyard in the Old Testament, this is how you have treated me, the son of God. Now, you may wonder, what possible relevance has this got to us here this morning. How can this challenge me and you? Well, I've got three things to say about this. The first is it shows us the kindness of our God. Have you ever thought of God as good? God isn't inherently evil. He doesn't have bad desires towards us. He's a kind God, and that's really encourages me. You see his kindness to his people of old, the nation of Israel. Uh, he gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, the vineyard, uh, a fruitful vineyard, and he protected them from the enemies outside. And in the temple where Jesus was giving this parable, apparently uh, there were representations of the vineyard on the walls 
around. So we can imagine, can't we, the people listening to the Saviour teaching this parable, and they could see images of the vine all around them. It would have been very uh, vivid for them. But how is God kind to you and me here this morning? Well, he's put us in this world. (laughs) God is the landowner. Do you realize that? We are the tenants. We're the vine dressers. We're here as stewards looking after this world. But the problem we've got is we think we are the owners. Is, Is that your attitude this morning? I am the one in control of my life. I don't want to hear about God. But my friend... Did you bring yourself into being? Of course you didn't. You were created. You found yourself in this world. God owns you and me. We don't own ourselves. We are tenants. And these tenants, they would not have lived in the vineyard forever. It would have been leased to them for a time. And you know what? We are on this earth for a period. I came across a phrase the other day which really struck me. It sounds good, but it's wrong. Somebody said, this is going to be my forever home. Uh, I don't know why I was watching these um, programs, these makeover programs on television. They're not my cup of tea. But somebody was renovating uh, an old house and they were going to make it into their forever home. How wrong? You haven't got a forever home in this world. You're going to have to leave this world behind one day. Uh, I'm looking at many grey heads here this morning. Most of your tenancy is behind you. You've got less time left. I've got less time left on this earth than when I was born. And the Bible says, man is appointed, and woman, man is appointed once to die, and after that the judgments. Your forever home is either going to be hell, according to the Bible, this is not my opinion, it's either eternal hell or eternal heaven. Now, where is your forever home this morning? This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Do you know that you've got a forever home in heaven. That's what the gospel is offering us. Dillis is in her forever home at this very moment. There are others from here. They've been promoted, not because they were good enough, but because of Jesus Christ and they trusted him. They've been promoted to their forever home. Are you going to be joining them? Am I going to be joining them? One day. So God's goodness, kindness to us, is shown in the fact that we have been created and that we're his tenants. And then think of where God has put you. Uh, A Welsh nationalist called Saunders Lewis. Have you heard of Saunders Lewis? He wrote a poem, Bicher Garmon, and he compared Wales to the vineyard. I can't translate it. But even if you're not Welsh, if you think of your country, 
Isn't God kind? Putting you where you are. I'm thinking of our Iranian brothers coming over here. The kindness of God. The psalmist said, our lines are fallen to us in pleasant places. Our borders are in pleasant places. I know we've had a tumultuous few years in this country, but really, there isn't much corruption, is there? There is a bit. But when you are driving in this country, and if you're stopped by police, as has happened to me in other countries, you don't have to pay them. There's not corruption on that level. We are in a country that is stable. Oh, how kind God is to have put us in a country like this. And then uh, the vineyard would have been protected by a wall. And hasn't God protected you and me? Uh, We've got a Judeo-Christian, or we've still got a bit of it anyway. It's eroding fast but we've got our laws based on the Ten Commandments. Isn't God kind giving us such things? God's rules are not there to bind us. When God says thou shalt not kill, that's to protect us. When God says thou shalt not commit adultery, it's to protect families and individuals. Isn't God good? And then think of the church. This is God's vineyard. The kindness of God. We're free to worship. The Jovans who are staying over here in the summer, they're in Haiti. I don't know if they still have to do this, but after church. Now, when you go home from church, will you have to drive past your house just to make sure that nobody's following you or just to make sure nobody's going to shoot at you? We're free to worship. Isn't that kindness of God? And, oh, my friends, this is an evangelical church. Do you know what that word means? It's evangel, which means gospel church. How good God is to put us in a church that has the wine of the gospel. In this vineyard, uh, there was the wine vat, and the grapes would have been uh, uh, pressed in that vat. And the wine is described as vintage wine, the best wine. Oh, my friends, isn't the wine of the gospel the most vintage wine of all? I never had the privilege of growing up. You young people and children, you've had the tremendous privilege I never had of growing up in a gospel church. I didn't hear the gospel until I went to university. You've been hearing it since uh, you were brought up. What a kind God bringing you to such a church. And when I think of the number of gospel churches in this part of Wales, uh, Nathan and Yenna, they are living in the wilds up in Snowdonia. They have to travel about 45 minutes to an hour to get to the nearest gospel church. How spoiled we are for choice. Uh, When I was in Andhra Pradesh in southeast India, there were people there who had walked for hours to get to the service. Even if you walked from Lisbon, you wouldn't spend that long. The kindness of God. 
and I love this church. There's no other church in the world I'd rather be pastor of. Because we're not just gospel. We've got a heritage. We're, oh, we're sound. And I'm not saying that's out of pride. We, we've got all these grand truths. Isn't that a feast? And we've got our heritage of revivals, which talks about God coming down by his spirit. And not only in the past, but we've got links with countries like Moldova and India, where God is working powerfully today. Oh, my friends, how good God is putting us in a church like this. The kindness of God. That's my first point. That's why this parable is so relevant to us this morning. Uh, where, well, we sung Zion. That's the church. Thrice happy place. Do, do you want to be anywhere else this morning? I, I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't want even to be on a mountaintop where I usually enjoy going. I'd rather be amongst the people of God hearing his word, hearing this gospel, thrice happy place adorned with wondrous grace and walls of grace embrace us round. In thee are tribes, that us, <laughs> appear to pray and praise and hear the sacred gospel's glorious sound. Oh, when I was saved, Having been brought up in chapel, I didn't like chapel. But once I had the life of Christ in me, I couldn't get enough of praying and praising and hearing the word of God. Oh, God is good, as the Jovans would say. Can you say that? God is good, putting me in the vineyard. Secondly, this parable is relevant to us because it's not just the kindness of God. It's the patience of God. I'd rather use the word in the authorized version, the long-suffering of God. Isn't that better? The long-suffering of God. What do we mean by that? Do you know what sin is in its essence? We need to be saved from sin. What sin? We tend, don't we, to think of sin as outward acts of disobedience and something outrageous, the sins of the flesh, and that's right. But the Bible talks of the sins or the lusts of the mind, the lusts of the heart, as well as those things that belong to our animal nature. And that's what you have in these vine dressers. They plan to do away with these servants. The desires of their hearts is to be as little gods rather than allow the owner to rule over them. And my friend, that's you a problem and mine. We may not be sinners in the outward sense. I'm talking now to most people who are attending church. And if we're honest, we're probably not outrageous in our lifestyles. I don't know, maybe some of you are. <laughs> but that's not our problem. Our problem are respectable heart sins. And do you know what sin is in its essence? This is one definition of sin. It's kicking in the face of God's kindness. It's kicking in the face of God's kindness. 
uh, when we were in the denomination, the Presbyterian Church, it was ruled in the 60s by people who didn't believe the gospel. So like these religious leaders, they were respectable. They led exemplary lives, but to put it bluntly, they hated Jesus' guts. That's sin. You can be as respectable as anybody, but if in your heart you say to Jesus Christ, go away, I don't want to be saved. This gospel isn't for me. It's for those people outside. Then that's the worst of sins. Jesus Christ never condemned the prostitutes. He never condemned the tax collectors, which were the dregs of society. He never condemned the drunkards. The only people that Jesus outrightly condemned were the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, because they were in their hearts the worst of sinners. So don't you see in the history of Israel, most of you will know your Old Testaments, how did they treat God's servants? Oh, they venerated the prophets after they were dead. They built monuments for them. But when the prophets were alive and speaking God's word, they hated them as God's representatives, just as these vine dressers were killing the servants of the landowner. They, what did they do? They threw Elijah into the wilderness. Uh, according to, I think, tradition, please correct me at the end, did they saw in half Isaiah in the end? They killed Zechariah the prophet at the altar. John the Baptist, the last prophet, what did they do to him? What did the king of Israel do to him, Herod? Beheaded him. And you will say, well, I'm not like that. I, I'm not like that. And Jesus is being autobiographical here, isn't he? What he says of the owner, he says, after all his servants have been treated thus, he says, verse 6, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But we know the story. In three days' time, that's how close we are to the crucifixion. These religious leaders, more than anybody else, are going to do away with the Son of God. That's sin for you. God sending his Messiah and these people who should have known better plotting to kill him, do away with him. But you will say to me, Pastor, I am not like that. I am not. How can this be relevant to me? What's your response to the word of God this morning? I said this before, but I need to say it again. You can be religious and hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we went around um, university with um, Gideon New Testaments, uh, when I was a student, some Gideon New Testaments were torn and thrown out of the windows of the halls of residence. What a terrible thing to do to God's word. Do you know who did that? People who were brought up in chapel, people who were still Sunday school teachers back home. They hated the fact that we were giving God's word to them, that we were saying to them, you need Jesus Christ. They hated that. They hated it. Is that you this morning? You know, sometimes we pastors 
can be like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We, we, we can be building empires. We can be more concerned about our own names than about the name of Jesus Christ. There is spiritual abuse going on, as many of you will have read, in evangelical circles now. I struggle with, I know there's nothing wrong with this per se, but when you have American, especially American pastors, naming ministries after themselves, <laughs> I struggle with that. And what about you hearers? It's not just as pastors, it's... You know, Spurgeon said, I'd rather be a preacher than a king or a queen. And I say amen to that. But it's a thankless job preaching. Sunday after Sunday. I've lost count of the number of sermons I've preached here now. It must be hundreds and hundreds. Little visible results. I don't know what God is doing in the heart, but little visible results. When you think of preachers across our country, it's a thankless task. And I think preaching is the only job where you have people who are not professionals in that job telling you how you should do it. Well, when I go to my barber's, I don't tell my barber, I tell my barber what I want, but I don't tell him how to cut my hair. You can probably see why. <laughs> but people with preachers, they think they know better. It's a thankless task. Uh, some of you may have known David um, James Morse. He was a missionary in Peru, preaching in revival there. And I asked him once, what does it like um, preaching back in Wales after being uh, in revival uh, in Peru? And do you know what he said? It's as if you're facing people and they're looking at you and they're saying, I dare you to bless me. Maybe that's an exaggeration. But have you come here this morning? Have I come here? Because preaching is a spectator in a sport, in a sense, for the preacher. Have we come with expectant hearts to see what God is saying? Have you got favorite preachers? We shouldn't have favorite preachers. We shouldn't have spiritual idols. We should be listening to God's servants. What will God say to me through that person? But, oh, how picky we can be. Oh, I can remember um, going to chapels in the middle of nowhere to preach, not evangelical churches, but chapels. And if you preach the gospel, even if it was in a plain way, there'd be people sitting there with a twinkle in their eye because they were hearing the gospel. They wouldn't get the gospel most Sundays. And when they'd get a preacher preaching the gospel, they'd be thrilled. And what are we like in evangelical churches? Spoiled for choice with preachers preaching the gospel to us every Sunday. What are we like? Oh, we're commenting on how they're dressed. We're commenting on their accents. We're commenting on their age. Are we any better? I'm not getting at you, my friends. I love this church. But haven't we been too spoiled? And how good God is, how patient he is, bearing up with us. 
Do, do you know what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther, I love Luther. He uses such graphic language. Although you've got to be careful with some Luther quotes because they've got swear words in them. This, this isn't a swear word. You'll be glad to hear. Uh, th- this is how Luther put it. Um, if I can find the quotes, that's another thing. He said, If I were God and the world and the church had treated me as it treated him, I would have kicked the wretched thing to pieces. And God could treat us like that, and we wouldn't have a complaint, would we? We reject him so often, even as those who say they're Christians. Uh, Listen to Spurgeon. This is how Spurgeon put it. Oh, this is so, so moving. If you reject God, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. If you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. And I'm going to come to that in a minute, but I'm thinking also of people who've sat in this church, not just for months, but for years, even for decades, and you still haven't believed in Jesus Christ. Oh, how terrible to hear the gospel Sunday after Sunday. Maybe to have been brought up in this church, to hear the gospel in Sunday school, to hear the gospel in youth meetings, to hear the gospel from your parents, to have your parents pray for your conversion, to go to camp every summer and to hear the gospel there and to have friends converted and tell you about Jesus Christ and still... Still, you haven't responded. You may not kick Jesus in the face, but you say, no, thank you. That's the same, you know. What did the writer to the Hebrews say? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. May this church never have gospel-hardened people in it. God is patient. He's more patient than I am, you know. When I started preaching, I could be so impatient. Oh, I, I really wanted to hold some people and shake them to get them to see the gospel. God isn't like that. He's so long-suffering. And then finally, I've got to come to this. This is so relevant because it shows the mercy of God. The mercy of God. You know, this is the amazing thing here. These vine dressers they think that in killing the sun, they are going to do away with everything and own the vine themselves. And these religious leaders thought that in sending Jesus Christ to his death, that would be the end of him. Now, this is the mercy of God, right? This is the amazing thing about the gospel. Just when everybody thought it was all over for Jesus and his followers... From the jaws of defeat, victory was snatched. Salvation came to you and me. Now, let me put it in different ways. Israel rejecting Jesus Christ, the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus Christ, was the means for this gospel to go out into all the world. God bringing good out of evil. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which was to happen in three days' time, was the very means through which God 
was going to bring salvation to you and to me. Uh, Jesus quotes from the Psalms, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Remember, Jesus was teaching this parable in the temple. Uh, the psalmist was thinking about the stones used to build the temple and the builders would see a stone and it didn't look like much and they would set it aside, they would reject it. But God, seeing that stone, would say, this is my chosen and I'm going to put this stone not in a little place in the corner, but I'm going to make it the chief cornerstone. And that's what God did with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It looks completely hopeless, doesn't it? Crucifixion devised by the Phoenicians, developed by the Romans, the cruelest form of execution ever devised by man. And this so-called Messiah was going to be crucified like all these other Messiahs that had appeared in Jesus' day. And that was going to be the end of the story. But in weakness, God's strength is made manifest. The very moment that Jesus cried out in dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God was turning his back on his beloved son because his beloved son was sin. Your sins and mine were laid on him. The wrath of God was laid on him. So it's diverted from us so that we can have a forever home in heaven. Praise God that the death of Jesus Christ was the death of death the death of sin, the death of hell, the death of Satan in that sense. The weakness of God is your hope, my hope. Praise God. And you know what? You were involved in the crucifixion. There's a hymn, it says this. Who, who, my saviour, this is done? Who could thy sacred body wound? No guilt thy spotless heart has known. No guile has in thy lips been found. This is the conclusion. I, I alone have done the deed. Tis I thy sacred flesh have torn. How can that be? My sins have caused thee, Lord, to bleed. Pointed the nail and fixed the thorn. The burden for me to sustain was too great. On thee, my Lord, was laid. To heal, this is the good news. To heal me, thou hast borne my pain. To bless me, thou a curse was made. The weakness, the horribleness, the shame of the crucifixion has become something glorious for you and me. Have you seen it? There is a green hill, not a green hill, the place of the skull. There is a ragged cross far away, outside the city wall. The son was killed outside of the vineyard. The son of God was slain outside the walls of Jerusalem, where the dear Lord was crucified and died to save you and me, if we trust in him. Oh, I've got to hurry as I come to conclusion. In weakness, God's power is shown, the mercy of God. And I'm thinking here now of myself. You know, once uh, the word Calvary, the word salvation, even the word Jesus Christ, it didn't mean anything to me. Roedenu Calvary gintan waradwydd mawr. My Angolog Venaidi, 
yn fwyn ar nef yn awr. I can't translate it, but now Calvary, salvation Jesus Christ is more than the world. Uh, oh, I just want you to respond to him. I, oh, <laughs> Luther said, there's such a thing as the severe mercy of God. What did the owner of the vineyard do eventually to these vine dressers? His patience was so, so long. His kindness, his mercy, his grace. But there's a limit, my friend. There's a limit to God's patience. One day, it'll be too late for you. It's still a day of grace. The doors of mercy are still open. But one day, they'll be shut. And they'll be shut forever. Oh, respond. Before it's too late. Before, You know, when I went to Israel, uh, I don't know how many of you have been to Israel, but there's a fort, Masada, uh, above the Dead Sea. It's a very spectacular place. You catch a cable car and you stand on top of these cliffs. And after AD 70, when the Roman soldiers surrounded Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed and many of the Jews perished, a group of zealots uh, went, fled to Masada, to this hill fort, 900 people. And for two years, they were inside. About 15,000 Roman soldiers surrounding the place. And they stood out for two years. Do you know what they did in the end? They all committed suicide, apart from one or two. The severe mercy... If we continue rejecting this gospel, God will judge. And he doesn't wait till judgment day. God may judge now. Uh, You know, North Africa, a few centuries after the New Testament, Augustine, the greatest theologian of the church, was in Hippo, North Africa. It was full of churches. Now, very little. In Wales, West Wales, where Wynne and Angela go, that's where many of the revivals happened in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, it's a spiritual wilderness when you're thinking of the gospel. And even a few years ago, there was what was called the black spot, a smot in D in Cardiganshire. Hardly any gospel churches. If God is good to us in providing this gospel, if we continue to reject, he judges He takes the candlestick away. This is the challenge of the gospel to you and to me. We're in an evangelical church. I don't take it for granted that this church will always remain a gospel-preaching church. If we don't respond to this gospel, God will take away his servants, take away the preaching of his word. Oh, may our hearts be tender. May we not be hard. And being tender doesn't mean that we're weepy all the time. There are some people who are like that by temperament. Maybe if you were watching the rugby yesterday, you were crying. Tears of joy, probably, if we won. I can't, I I think we won. (laughs) Some people can't cry. That doesn't mean they're hard-hearted. You know what I mean. Oh, may our hearts be soft. 
when we respond to God and his word. May, may we all say, I don't know if you're a Christian or not this morning, but may you say with me, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. I'm not the owner. You are. I'm bowing the knee to you as Lord. I want you to save me. Come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. There's nothing good in my heart in and of myself. It's all sinful. But you have died for a sinner like me. And you can cleanse me by your blood. And I'm asking you this morning, come to my heart. And if you do that, you will have a forever home in heaven. And even in this life, you know, eternal life doesn't begin in heaven. It begins now. You can know Jesus Christ in the Spirit. Amazing. And even if you have to go through difficulties, as you will, he will be with you. And, oh, there's nothing better in all the world. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. May that truth never, never be stopped declaring in this pulpit. May we praise God for putting us where he has, for giving us gospel wine, vintage. And may we respond in our hearts to Jesus' wonderful grace for his namesake.